Thank you again, worship team. Uh, I, I want to remind us that what you just experienced doesn't happen by accident. That's, uh, these people make it look easy because they, are, they have practiced for hours at what they do, and they think carefully about their set list, and it's uh, something that they put a lot of energy to. Welcome everyone who's here. If you're here for the first time, uh, we all were here for the first time at some time, so welcome. I hope you do feel welcome. And if you don't, try us again. And for those of us who are here for more than the first time, try to help those first-time people feel welcome. You know where I'm going with all of that. Sometimes in our failures, most often in our failures, God is just beginning. I hope what we get out of this lesson today from following up in the story of Bathsheba is that we need to be stewards of our place. Stewards of our place, wherever we are, whether that's in this particular position at a service station, or that position there, or this position here, we need to be stewards of that place. Take care of that place. And that place is usually a place of power or influence of some sort. Our past does not need to dictate our future. Wherever you were yesterday does not mean you have to be in that same place tomorrow or even this afternoon. Those things are so often subject to our choices. This is a place of grace here at Cornerstone. Your yesterday gets grace, your tomorrow gets grace, and I hope mine does as well. There are some Bathshebas in this room today. There are some Davids in this room. There are some Nathans in this room. There's some Absaloms here. There's some Uriahs here, and there's some Josiahs here, and then the rest of us are just muddled somewhere along the path. We're in Matthew chapter 1, believe it or not, and this, this genealogy that Matthew starts out with is really important because this genealogy it has a group of scandalous people, not just the women, but the men are even more scandalous than these women. What's unique is not the scandal, but it's unique that in a patriarchal society where men dominated, and not white men. These were Jewish men. This is a whole Middle, Middle Eastern culture of all kinds of men. They dominated, and women were somewhere between uh, helpers and slaves and servants, and, but they were definitely a bit owned. At least that was the thinking. And so we have, in a lineage of Jesus, we have women listed, when in a patriarchal society, that seems quite shocking. Matthew does that, I have suggested to you before, to tip the hat to the fifth woman in this story who happened to be an unwed, pregnant, teenage mother. Her name is Mary. She left town to, for a while for her pregnancy. What if Mary walked into our little gathering here this morning and sat right there? What would we think of Mary? 
What if Tamar walked in? What would we think of Tamar? How would we respond to her? What would we think of Rahab, especially, if she came in? Because that name causes certain reactions in, in us. So we've covered Tamar. She was an outsider. She was a Canaanite, a foreigner. That's important. I don't know if you're catching my emphasis on that, but she was not an insider listed in the lineage of Jesus. I find that fascinating. As I said when I first started that, all of you know, being in the agricultural business and being in and around livestock most of your life, if you're trying to buy a bull for your cows, depending on your level of um, uh, uh, excellence in this, you would want to know the pedigree of your bull, would you not? You'd want to know who the father and the mother were and their lineage. And their lineage is really important to what kind of offspring because who the bull was yesterday is who the kind of offspring the bull will produce tomorrow as opposed to humans. And so I would think, wouldn't you, that in the lineage of Jesus, this would be a sterling, royal, British, palatial lineage of the highest and the best, the smartest, the most handsome, the tallest. And we want to prove to you that Jesus is from the royal lineage. Look at these people. And so we look at these people, and we find a lot of messes. And I'm not sure why, really, I take great comfort in that. Do you? Yeah. Because Jesus is, among all things, for all people, not just the handsome and the famous and the tall and the wealthy. Tamar was treated unjustly. She was excluded. Tamar tried to do the right thing. She suffered for a long time. And finally, she used what I'll call biblical cunning. Rahab, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, is a different kind of story. But once again, we have an outsider, another Canaanite. She was cunning. She was smart. She was shamed. She was also scandalized. And Tamar was more sinned against than she was a sinner. I don't know what you think of. When you hear the word Rahab, I know what I was taught think of, and I was taught to think that she would be one of our sinniest sinners. I suggest to you this morning that Rahab was way more sinned against than she was sinner. And every time that knock on her door came, there was another person willing to sin against her her womanhood, her femininity, her humanity. Now, she was volitional in that. I did skip Ruth. I didn't realize it until two weeks ago at this very spot that in my excitement about all of this, I've skipped Ruth. We'll get back to her. She's the third woman in this patriarchal list of males. And now we come to Uriah's wife. I suggested to you two weeks ago, that Matthew is attempting to tip the hat 
to Bathsheba uh, by not identifying her directly. I think he gives Bathsheba a huge break. You see, Matthew knew the culture. And as I suggested last week, a couple things. I don't think this story of Bathsheba is about the story of Bathsheba. I think it's about David. So the story begins long before we come to 2 Samuel 12 or 11, where David takes his bath with Sheba. Yeah, you laugh, but you'll remember that, won't you? Right. Thank you, Susie. She gets a dollar for every laugh. That's two dollars over. It's three. Nothing ever begins at the beginning. No one ever just appears, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, on the voice out of nowhere. They always have a backstory, and the voice knows that's where the money is. That's where the interest is in the backstory. And so David and Bathsheba never started. The story doesn't start just one late afternoon in the early evening when David cruises up on his deck. The story didn't start there. The story started long before. So do you start the story? Do you start it when he was a year earlier, two years earlier? Do you start it when he was crowned king? Do you start it when Saul threw the spears at him? Do you start it with his dad? Do you start it with back when he was a shepherd playing the flute? Maybe you start it when he was three years old and somebody influenced him somehow. Maybe we have to go back to his parents to start David's story. But if we're going to do that, I wonder if it's his grand or in the great, how far back shall we go when we begin David's story? I'll choose, and I chose two weeks ago, to pick it up with the time he came in to town with the ark. And he was dancing. Hi, sweetheart. You can come right up here if you need to. Mm-hmm. Got a cute little girl coming up. I suggest, for the purposes of today, our story starts when his wife, already distant from David, she was in the palace while he was out doing something incredibly important for the Jewish community, bringing back the ark. He was celebrating, and she stayed home. That's interesting. There's certainly a story there, isn't isn't there? Huge party, a huge event, and she stays in the palace. I don't know why. I don't want to judge her early do know as she looked out her window, Scripture records that she was disgusted with David dancing scantily with the servant girls watching. And David chooses to, I'm going to, okay, I'll do battle with you. Maybe she had been contemptuous with David for years and constantly blocking David. I don't know. But he decides, maybe for the first time, maybe it was their pattern to say, all right, I'm going to meet you there. You want to fight? I'll fight. I guess you want to fight because this is a big deal and you're choosing now to say that I'm doing something wrong. All right, I'll fight. I'll bite on that thing that you're sending out there. Sweetheart, if it pleases the Lord and if this happens again, I'll get even more dancey. And scripture records that they were estranged from that point on. Apparently, we didn't have therapists who could help them work that out. Scripture says she despised him. I talked about in times of victory and complacency, we are 
in the most danger. David was the initiator in this relationship with Bathsheba. He initiated at least three or four different times, and he may have groomed her prior to that. Most abuse victims are at some level groomed for a long period of time. That could be days, it could be weeks, it could be years, that they are groomed into a trust relationship with the abuser somehow. Possibly David had groomed Bathsheba. Point number three last week, life puts us in binds. There are times when we can't control what's going on. Bathsheba was doing her thing. She was a foreigner. Uh, it was her, bo- her husband's boss who had invited her up to the palace. What was she going to do? And once she got there, and once this thing happened, very few scholars actually say she was raped. Um, Hardly any modern-day scholars even imply that. But she was trapped. She was with the king. And we know what happens even today if someone comes forward with an important official and say, this happened. We know what happens already. Now, with regard to current situation and 35 years ago, and they're both in high school, I'm not making a comment on that. We've got enough evidence of that going on already. So this woman in a patriarchal society 3,000 years ago, 500 years before Plato and Socrates, she was in danger of her life if she were to speak out against the king. Certainly. She was a bit trapped. She may have made some bad decisions. She have may, maybe chose to stay alive. She, she was stuck. Have you ever been stuck in a situation? Have you ever, ever been in High school, and your buddy says, hey, I'm going to come get you. We'll go to the ball game. Mom and dad, can I go to the ball game? And then when you get to into the car uh, and get a block away, three friends jump out of the truck trunk of the car. They jump into the front seat, and off you go, and you never go to the ball game. Even though you don't want to go to that place, you might have been stuck and not known how to get out of it. With cell phones now, things are a little bit different. But we all know that we can get stuck. You get a job. You move to a new city. There, you just bought a new house. Your wife quit her job. And two weeks in, you realize things weren't what they thought they were. And your kids have uprooted and moved into a new school. And you're committed to a new mortgage. You've made plans based on that. You've told your family that this is going on. In the Philippines, the sex trade happens this way. Scouts go out to the local communities or and around the different islands in the Philippines, and they find cute females, and they approach their parents and say, we are model scouts, or we're scouts from the local hair salon, and we're looking for certain kinds of people to be in our magazines that we can groom to turn into stars. And we think your 12-year-old, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, 6-year-old has that kind of talent. Well, these people in these communities are so poor, if if they don't really have a tough time feeding this young girl. And the story goes, we think within three or four months, she'll be making enough money to be able to support you and your family. And in fact, we're going to front that money. We think her little brother would really do well in private school. We're going to front you some money. We're going to buy him a uniform and we're going to go register her to private school because this girl's got talent. We're willing to prove to you. We'll put our money where our mouth is. She's got talent. She spends three days in beauty school 
and then someone whispers in her ear, you can make five times the money in a day if uh, you'll just do certain things. And off she goes, and now she can't go home because little brother's in school. Her parents think she's learning how to become a beautician. It's a shame culture in Asia, in the Philippines. That woman, to some degree, is trapped. To step out of that trap, she's in danger of her life, and she is to voluntarily return back to poverty and return to shame. So it's a double-bound trap for that girl. And by the way, the same thing happens in Houston, same thing happens in New York, and the same thing happens in Los Angeles, San Diego, all over the country. I was talking with a border guard up in the northern, northeast corner of the state of Washington. And their number one issue has to do with children here in this area. Can you believe that? we get trapped. Sheba, I suggest to us, was in a, a bit of a trap. Last week I concluded, two weeks ago I concluded with, be careful how we judge anyone or anything. If Bathsheba were to walk in pregnant, how would we judge her? If Mary were to walk in here pregnant, if Rahab were to show up at our Wednesday night dressed in her work clothes, how would we respond to her? Ladies, that question goes to you in particular. If Tamar, after we heard what she did, were to show up, how would we respond to her? Be careful how we judge anyone or anything because we don't know how God will use this story. Right? Give me a little something, people. Or might I say, your story. I believe we need to initiate protection for the vulnerable, not protection for ourselves. Protection for the vulnerable, not self-protection for ourselves. We've got this people in this community who have stumbled and falled, and even the legal system is involved with their situation right now. I am so not about that. All I'm concerned about is grabbing these guys, hugging them, letting them know they're loved, that there's grace, that this cornerstone is a safe place. Don't care where you've been. Don't care what you've done. Come get grace at this place. For some of you, easier said than done. I suggest we practice. Susie practices all the time. She'll go home with me this afternoon. Those of you who are paying attention to that joke. Failure is always a gateway to something new. And it's something that we can't see yet. Do you recall the portal analogy? The pothole? Uh, where we always see the flaw in the wood, and until we get close, we really can't see, and it gets narrower and narrower. We just see something behind there, but can't tell for sure what it is. Until we get our eye up close, we see a whole new world there that is actually, in some ways, enticing, but we don't want to go through the knot hole. But life, usually, if we're lucky, draws us through 
that not whole. And those of us who are astute will allow it to go through the knot hole and come out the other side broken, gentle, humble. Those of us who are not astute will come out the other side shaking our fist, blaming, claiming to be the victim, calling ourselves abused, and living there and saying, I got sucked through the knot hole. And they become more hard and never adapt to their new world and never become what hope those of us of faith will become. Bathsheba is an accessory to this story. All of that was by way of introduction to this week. Samuel, 2 Samuel 12, we come around to the next part of the story of David. Are you still with me? So we have Bathsheba pregnant. We have Uriah dead. We have Bathsheba mourning for seven days, and God, then, then David marries her. We have God definitely not happy. The last verse of, of um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, after the time of mourning was over, David brought Bathsheba to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased God. So God is not happy. Whoa. Enter Nathan, Romans chapter 12, or, or Matthew, 2 Matthew, 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's guilt, I want us to think about this as I want us to do all of Scripture. David's guilt is not necessarily or so much his affair. I think he's guilty of that, and I think that was... <clears throat> certainly is a violation in nearly every culture, including Scripture. I think the thing that displeased God was David was called to shepherd, sheep herd, the children in his kingdom. He was called to shepherd them. He not only failed to shepherd well, he abused his position as the shepherd to take advantage of someone who was weaker and more vulnerable, whose protection was out of town. And that was his real crime. He shamelessly abused his power and position as shepherd. For you note takers, who I now realize a few of you are out there, 2 Samuel 5, chapter 2, chapter 7 and 8. You'll see David's calling to be a shepherd. And I think we get that evidence of that. Excuse me, please. Chapter 12. I have spent most of my career vocationally in this idea of story. I've sat with men and in a large part of what Susie and I did last week was involved in setting with men. And I wish I could tell you their stories, but I really can't because they're their stories. But I want to tell you their story of heroic, brokenness, adventure, shame, struggle, just like all of us. The power of story is incredibly powerful. One of the most powerful things there is. And we come to 
2 Samuel 12, and Nathan enters the picture here. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, when Nathan came to David, he told a story. Because the power of story is way more powerful than facts or confrontation. And we like to think that, that Nathan confronted David. Maybe a little bit, but the way he did it was cunning, was wise, was careful. And he did it through story. Right? Now, if you want to have an ineffective impact, walk up to someone and say, what you're doing is wrong, you need to change. And watch their, watch their relationship with you immediately break. And watch, watch you have no more conversation with them, and they'll avoid you on Sunday mornings. Walk up to someone and say, I know what you're up to. I know what you did, and that's wrong. You've got to stop. We're going to bring you in front of the church, and we're going to confront you. We're going to hold you accountable, and that we never see that person again. Right? But, oh, I felt good about what I did. I told them. How many times our Sunday afternoon stories do we say, listen to ourselves, do we say, and then I said, and then I said, and then I told her, and then I said, and isn't it interesting, as we tell those stories, we always seem to have perfect wisdom in what we said. We always seem to have told them what they should have known. We always seem to be the smartest one in the exchange. And then I said, and I, then he said, well, I was like, that's what I'm We always tend to be the heroes of our own narratives, don't we? And so Nathan doesn't do that. He comes and he tells a story. And I want to ask you to, to humor me a little bit as I tell you the story so we don't read it, but I want you to go home and read 2 Samuel chapter 12, because if the Bible's not interesting, you're not reading the right footnotes. So Nathan comes to David. Nathan was a local prophet. Hey, David, what's going on? Hey, Nathan, good to see you. What's up, man? Oh, we got a problem out there in the kingdom. Yeah, what's that? Well, there's this rich guy who owns lots of sheep. I don't even know how many, lots. And uh, working for him, he's got this little guy's barely can afford one sheep. Well, this little ewe has become the family pet. Sleeps with him. He's got his name. He feeds it at his table. He, he hugs it. Everybody in his family loves this little ewe. It's the only one he's got. He can't really even offer it for a sacrifice. He's not willing to give it up. His whole family loves this sheep. It's very dear to him. Yeah, okay. Well, what's up? Well, the rich guy has a visitor come from out of town, and he's getting ready to throw a big banquet. Okay, sounds good. Well, the rich guy doesn't take one of his many, many, many sheep. The rich guy calls the poor guy and says, hey, that little lamb you got. And David goes, you're kidding me. No, I'm paraphrasing the story, right? Because you're kidding me is not in Scripture. Here. You're kidding me. No, that's what happened. What do you think I should do? And David says, that rich guy needs to be put to death. That's a travesty. That is so wrong. He needs to do all these other things. And then Nathan said, you're that guy. You're that guy. See, David was in the position of power. 
And the poor man, the soldier who did the right thing, loved his wife, loved his troops, was fighting for David, had no power. The powerless guy even carried his own death note, as you remember in, in chapter 11, carried his own death note out to the field to give to the general who put Uriah in the front lines. Powerless. David was brutal on that man. David with anger against the man, said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who do, do, did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing, and he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. I anointed you. God says, over Israel, I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's your arm. Israel and Judah, and too little, I have given you even more. And despite all of this, you struck down Uriah the Hittite. You could take his wife to be your own. Whoa. I don't know if you feel, some of you do. I feel the weight of that. Can you, have you set in that position to feel the weight? That is a terrible, terrible, terrible weight. I think at that point, David woke up. Can I say this to us? I think that most of us through life asleep or half because we've always done it. We do what we do because it brings us comfort. It brings us distraction. It brings us status or whatever it is you hope for. But we're kind of asleep to ourselves. We don't see our own stuff. We don't catch our own sins. We don't really see ourselves in full truth. And if we think we see ourselves in full truth, let's go ask our children about ourselves. Because I guarantee they see us in a little different truth. I think David at this moment here, I don't think we really wake up until we get pulled through that knothole. I don't think Jonah woke up until he got spit up on the beach or somewhere. I don't think David woke up until this moment. I don't think that Joseph woke up until he was thrown into the pit and realized, oh, I'm going to die. I don't think my friend <clears throat> woke up until after his heart attack. And now suddenly he's the nicest guy in the world years later, and he wasn't before. I don't think I've woken up until I've been hit with some big, you are the man. <clears throat> Point number one. I've got a few points, and then I'm going to bring back up. I want you to think about in, in this passage where you fit, where your story is. If we are lucky enough or have good people in our lives, we will be exposed. 
No one wants this, of course. But for the sake of our souls, we have to be exposed. We have to be woken up. And we resist it. And if, if a good friend or a spouse says to us, can I talk to you about something? said, our temptation is to immediately say, well, of course I said that. You, you did this. You did this. You did this. That's why I did that. Because we don't like to be exposed. We don't even want to entertain if there's a thread of truth about that. And where some of us are more interested in the facts. Tell me the facts. Where, no, you were over by the house. No, I wasn't, sweetheart. I just got out of the car. No, no, no. You were by the house. Because remember, you just picked up the... Because we don't like, we resist this exposure. But it's this exposure that's the very thing that saves our souls. It's what we must have. It's when we get born again. It's when we get born again. And we go through the passage. We get constricted. It's dark. It's everything we don't want. It's pressure we beg not to have. We want to go back to where we were, and suddenly we're in a new place. We don't like it at first. But, whoa, it's light-filled. There's people here. I thought I was dying. I'm not dying. And it's called being born again. We pass through that knothole. That passage is the very thing that we resist, which is the very thing that saves us. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. Jesus. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. James tells us the humble will be exalted. To this man will I look, Isaiah says, to him who is humble, contrite, and who trembles at my word. Jesus never looks for people who have it all together. Repentance is in the heart, not in the words. It's in the heart and in the actions. Now, if you want to read Psalm 51, you'll see David's heart, and you'll see his actions as well. True repentance deals with motives, not just the actions. You can tell a child to say, I'm sorry, but we all know they may or may not be sorry. Chances are they're probably not. They're just doing what we said. And we walk off, and we're pretty happy because my child obeyed, but nothing happened the heart of that child, except my mom and dad are idiots. They think, I'm sorry. <laughs> and we teach our kids to be religious. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We teach them to do things and pretend that that makes everything okay. And we little religious zealots. At 35, say, I did the right thing. And their wife, go, and their wife quietly goes, yeah, but what an what an evil motive you had. Repentance is in the heart. Psalm 51, read David's repentance. Early in our marriage, I heard this, this good lady right here. I, as recently as last Friday, apologized for that thing that happened eight years ago. Because it hurt. It hurt her. I could easily say, that's eight years ago. Why are you bringing that up again? Or I could say, oh, it still hurts. I am so sorry. 
so sorry I did that. I'm so sorry that's in your mind. I'm so sorry you have to even think about that. None of us like to be pulled through that portal. The brave and the courageous are willing to face the truth about themselves and the continued truth. Repentance and forgiveness do not mitigate consequences. David, the baby died, right? And David's sons ended up being a mess. And there's rape and there's murder and there's all kinds of things. By the way, David, as much as we love David, when his sons start going sideways, Scripture says David got angry. So we say, okay, what did you do, David? And we, what did you do, David? What did you, four years later, what? David did nothing. He got angry, but he did nothing. How many of us are like that? We just get angry, but when it comes time to, okay, we don't act. We just get angry. David did that. Point four. God uses brokenness and contrition. Always. So, Clay, if you'll begin to come up here, I, I want to ask these folks to think. Failure sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, God is just beginning. In our failure, sometimes God is just beginning. We need to be stewards of our, of our place in society. Our past does not dictate our future. And I hope this is a place of grace. So if you could dim the lights for a minute, I just want to ask you to think. I'm not going to ask you to uh, come up front or go anywhere or do anything, but I will ask you to quietly raise your hand just so, so I can see. But if you'll bow your heads so that we, we can have a sense of privacy here and no looking around out of respect for just the other people, do, do your work. Don't do or worry about someone else needing to do their work. Did any of you relate to the story today? Did you see yourself in that story? Let me see some hands. Yep, 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 yeah, of course. Absolutely. How many of you relate to Bathsheba having been a victim? And got trapped in a situation that, yeah, I see it, where you felt like, yep, you couldn't do anything about it, where you felt helpless. Yep. For some of us, that's hard to face. That's hard to say, but I see the hands. How many of you have had life come to you and say, you're the man, you're the person, but you resisted, you fought back, you def defended yourself. Yep, me too. My hands are up on all of these people. God's moving in at Cornerstone this morning, and I'm not so arrogant to think that he just uses quiet moments and bowed heads and eyes and soft music to do that. God works all the time. But I do want to invite you to take this chance. And I'm going to be quiet while Clay quietly sings, plays for about a minute. And I want you to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in this story of 2 Samuel 11 and 12? Where do you see yourself? <laughs>